couple years ago, I was sitting down, uh, taking a break from my job at The Athletic Media Company, and uh, I was drinking a non-alcoholic beer from Athletic Brewing, and I thought, uh, hey, this this could be a partnership because I'm, I'm an ad wizard, and so I put those two things together, and took a couple years, but now I get to read ads for Athletic Brewing and uh, their non-alcoholic beers, and I'm excited about it. And I'm excited about it because I like the product. I like the product for a variety of different reasons. There are times where I'm uh, the designated driver, and that is, it's perfect for me. I don't feel like I'm, I'm missing out on a whole lot. There are also times where I'm not the designated driver, but it's going to be a long day of gabbing, and I don't necessarily need to have 10 IPAs in a row. So I will mix in an athletic, non-alcoholic beer, and I, I feel like I don't miss a beat, and it allows me to pace myself uh, the way I want to do it. It's perfect for beach days, music festivals, and baseball games, camping, late nights. Uh, they have a ton of different varieties. They have uh, light. They have upside uh, Don Golden. They have Run Wild IPA. They have a hazy IPA. They have summer seasonals. They've got a, a lemon Rattler ripe pursuit. I don't even know what a Rattler is, but now I want to try it. I feel bad that I haven't tried it. So this summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer you need to know, Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you and use the code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off. It's near beer, non-alcoholic beer, and it tastes Listen, I grew up with some funky ones. Uh, those didn't taste like beer. This tastes like this. This is good non-alcoholic beer. Uh, exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. And uh, Bruce, we are going to be joined by a special guest later, a guy we covered back in his Florida State days. And even, has before, gone that, even before that, in your I, case, even I, before I, that, you go yeah. back a long, long ways with Byron Roll. So uh, he has a book out. And we want to talk to him about that. Um, but first, we want to get to some some things happening in college football pretty significant news coming related to college football. But first uh, we have a cool series on the athletic this week, revisiting the, this most recent coaching carousel going behind the scenes of some of the uh, more significant hires. I had one on the Lincoln Riley USC hire that I wrote with Antonio Morales. And you have one uh, that went up Wednesday morning on the Miami Mario Cristobal uh, hire with our Miami writer, Manny Navarro. Um, you guys can read that on The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash the audible for a special deal. But tell us a little bit what you may have learned in your reporting for this that you didn't previously know about how that all went down. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting for a lot of uh, for a lot of people to look at and say, okay, yeah, the U is back. We've heard that before. We hear that all the time. But what we really got into is why things are so different and what's really different. Uh, the financial commitment, it's not just that. It's really, I think, the emphasis more than anything that 
they have put on as Mario Cristobal told me this week himself, he was like, look, the powers that be in Miami kind of knew, like I was at a place that had great resources that my family loved it there. And I, you know, I wasn't going to, we weren't going to talk to anybody until after the season that couldn't happen, but they knew if they were going to approach me, then they better show that they were serious about winning national titles. And you know, now six months later, as you know, we've done this many, I did the story, everything that they had said would be in lined up, not only has been lined up, it's probably even been even more emphatic uh, than he'd even hoped right down to the staff that he was able to put together. And so in the story, we were able to really give a TikTok on what was happening behind the scenes. And it's really an inside story, not just that, but also how Cristobal ended up hiring this staff with a bunch of home run hires where, you know, a lot of times Miami had not been able to afford some guys that, you know, they may have targeted. I mean, you go back to when, when Randy Shannon was the head coach, I think he went, he landed on his Patrick Nix was like his literally his 10th choice to be the offensive coordinator. So I think it'll give people a real picture of what is going on at Miami right now and why. It really is dramatic. I mean, I just feel like for so long, the storyline around Miami athletics was they don't have money. Uh, they don't, they're, they, you know, they don't, uh, they don't have a chance to, to get a coach of that caliber or, or that profile. Um, I remember it was very odd, you know, without knowing what we know now that that couple week period where it seemed like Manny Diaz is going to get fired or maybe he's going to stay if they don't get Chris, you know, and, and yeah, that really has turned out to be the strategy. So now that it's happened, you know, and I think this ties in obviously with the John Ruiz and his, you know, very public uh, throwing money around toward Miami athletics. It's just, it's like, it's a different, it's a completely different climate there. Um, so we will see how successful he may be. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, as he, he said himself, I was at a place with, great resources, great facilities. And we, we loved it there, but this is, you know, this is home. And I think, you know, there's a part of the story where he says to me, you know, it's like, it was probably almost 25 years ago. He's breaking into coaching and Butch Davis, you know, was like, you sure really sure you want to be a coach and goes through all the things that, that end up, you know, happening or that you miss out on in life, if you're a football coach and he just says back to him, I want to be in your seat. And now whatever it is, you know, 23 years later, that's where he is. And so I think people will get it. Like I, I, this story, I think Miami fans will like, but I think it's also, you know, a lot of college football fans, it'll probably open some eyes because for so long, so many people have thought, um, you know, this is, you know, what's up with this place. And now I think you have a, you, if you read the story, you'll have a real feel for it. Uh, let me ask you, you a, your, a question. So as you mentioned on this series, you and our USC beat writer, Antonio Morales did a story on when Lincoln Riley got hired, not so much on the hiring itself, but really about how they tried to get up to speed at USC. And one of the interesting details in the story and your reporting was basically there was a runoff rule that USC found or utilized that probably a lot of people don't know about. Um, our colleague Max Olson is going to have a really interesting story, I think, go online 
you know, in more detail about that specific rule. But let me ask you this, when you're hearing this, like what's going through your mind, you know, just thinking in the context of, remember our old stories about our friend Houston Nutt and, you know, signing 38 guys and was the SEC running people off. And it was such a hot, you know, such a debate topic, whatever, like eight or nine years ago. And now all of a sudden, you know, Lincoln Riley, I think, was telling you directly, hey, this is what we're doing. It wasn't so much like like Lincoln Riley. Well, let me back up a second and just explain that the, the point of this story was not to revisit. Hey, when you know, when did his you know, when did he first make contact with Oklahoma and Caleb Williams and all that stuff? It was, you know, frankly, could have been any school that went through a coaching change this past season. We just wanted to. Illustrate. Or, or, or give a glimpse into all of the th- things that happen behind the scenes leading up to a coaching change. And then once the coach is hired and once they have that press conference, all the million things that have to happen for him to hire a staff and turn over the roster and, you know, behind the scenes, the marketing of that they're doing and all those things. So of course, so, so my first interview of the day when I visited there a few weeks ago was with Lincoln Riley. And I did remember being surprised that he used the term forced attrition, that we forced some of the attrition here because coaches don't usually admit to that. Later in the day, I sat down for an hour with Brandon Sosna, who's basically Mike Bone, Daddy's, you know, number two man and who was um, kind of handling the nitty gritty of the whole coaching transition and Joseph Wood, who is the AD for or assistant AD for football. And they, yeah, they spelled it out. They said, Hey, our compliance department came up with that came back to us with this uh, bylaw that we had never heard of that frankly, doesn't really, as far as I can tell, I'd never heard of it. Um, it went kind of quietly went into effect in 2017 and it allows a coach in his first year on the job for up to a year to remove guys from the roster so long as the school honors their scholarship now of course in in the case of a program like usc most guys that that happens to are going to enter the transfer portal and they're not going to be but you do it with the possibility that the guy's going to say i don't want to leave usc and you're going to be paying for his education until he completes his degree even though he's not on the football team they said they did that with 10 guys so when you would hear stories about well, Lincoln Riley himself has said, you know, we're turning over the roster. It's going to be the most unique roster that's ever been assembled, et cetera. Um, they have had 41 scholarship players from last year's team leave. And some of that obviously is Drake London turns pro or, you know, some guys did use up their eligibility, though with the COVID extra season, not that many, frankly, had used up their eligibility. Um and then, you know, Jackson Dart wasn't forced off the team. He wanted to transfer. Uh, well, they had a, they had a transfer. Of guys who jumped to the NFL draft and maybe mm-hmm. didn't get drafted. Or, you know, I think there were former big recruits who were like, yeah, I'm going to go to the NFL. And the NFL, you know, probably wasn't. They had it. nine guys who either – nine guys who went professional, whether that was, um, you know, three years in or maybe they could have come back and used the COVID season they decided to move on. Um, but yeah, they've had, uh, 20, 25 players as of this date, either enter the portal or they do have a couple of medical retirements. Um, now having said all that, like, you know, I saw people in the comments, even USC fans were like, yeah, that makes me feel a little bit icky that <laughs> they were just forcing guys off the team. Um, but we know that, that even without that role, this happens coaches and there's a coaching change. 
And it, well, it used to also happen a lot where players would get medical. So what that would mean is, was there an injury? If there was, then all of a sudden you had to honor the scholarship, but that player couldn't be part of your program essentially. And unless a player wanted to keep playing, that's how it was kind of couched in that. Maybe there was somebody who either didn't love football as much as the you know the coaches thought that that person might when they recruited them. Maybe they just weren't very good. Maybe there was an injury um, or maybe that just, you know, life kind of changed for them, whatever it was that, that was how a lot of guys got parted ways. Now, what I think is interesting is there used to be a part where it's like, Oh, somebody was a list guy. And there was an explanation. Oh, this person either had too many positive pot tests too you know, missed too many treatments, you know, missed too many classes academically was lower or whatever the issue was. What the issue really couldn't have been was that player sucked. You know, they tried, they sucked. You know, you're not, I mean, technically you have to honor their, their, you cannot, you know, take a guy. And in fact, at some point we went to four-year scholarships and you can't take that scholarship away for performance reasons. But, you know, I think with the transfer portal, there's this assumption that everybody that's in the transfer portal decided to enter the transfer portal, right? Because that's what coaches talk about. They complain about uh, guys who, as soon as they hit some adversity, they quit, they leave the team. They are always looking for the next thing. The fact of the matter is there's a lot of guys in the portal who it wasn't necessarily their choice to be in the portal. Um, whether they were told, Hey, it would be in your best interest to, to find a new school. Cause you're not going to play here. Or in this case with this new coach, uh, literally, you know, above board took them off the roster. So it's interesting. I feel like we've gone full circle in the span of a decade. You know, you mentioned it. I think it was around 2010, 2011, where there was a huge uproar over about oversigning as a lot of the SEC, SEC schools in, in Alabama in particular, when Nick Saban was first building his dynasty, would sign 32, 33, whatever guys with the with the um, I remember Houston signed, th- not Houston, University of Houston, our guy Nutt signed 38 one year. He did. And now some of those were Juco guys. And there was this feeling of there's an assumption that not all of them are going to get in, uh, but we will stash them at a Juco somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and it, I think at that point, that, that reminds me, like that point was actually something, how comfortable your athletic director who had to sign off on that. Cause I remembered working on meat market, same school, obviously is where Houston nut was coaching a few years later was the AD said, like, if we're not, if we don't know that these kids are going to qualify, you can't send them scholarship papers. Or you can't right. send them color of intent. And so if some of those players were like, eh, you know, they're, they're not going to sign with you. Then all of a sudden you could be, end up with actually some leftover, which is what I think might've happened when either the year I worked on the book or the year after the book came out. And so it, it really got to be an interesting kind of seeing the sausage get made kind of process. And as you said, I don't know if we've come full circle, but we've definitely come. It's night and day difference compared to what it was. And maybe it's just now all of a sudden that there's a lot, there's some more transparency and, you know, it just means they're probably more like employees, just one bigger step to being more like employees than anything else. The reason I said we come full circle is at that time, um, you know, that caused some rule changes in the NCA and at the conference levels to get to the point where, you know, it was always 25 scholarships per class. There didn't used to be necessarily rules nationwide limiting how many 
guys you could sign in a class, right? Mm -hmm. So eventually that became a hard cap too. Well, as we're recording this, it is Wednesday morning and later today, uh, the NCAA Division, Division One Council will vote and we believe approve uh, a pretty radical change to rosters in college football, which is for no more 25 scholarship limit. Sign as many guys as you want, give out as many scholarships as you want in a given year, as long as you keep it at 85. Now, this is obviously a response to the portal and the immediate eligibility. Coaches are in some situations are finding that they can't, you know, replace guys as, as you know, guys are leaving at a faster pace than they can replace. They're dealing with that limit. Now this, this uh, past cycle, they did do a one-time waiver to allow you to bring, to get up to 32 if you had seven guys transfer, but you had to replace them with transfers. Now it's saying, you know, you've heard coaches say, this is a safety issue. We don't have enough guys to practice. Uh, Certainly in, in rebuilding situations, you know, Kansas for years was dealing with massive uh, right. you know, and, below and, 85. And one year at the AFCA meetings, I remember in the meeting um, talking to one of the assistants who came out and he was like, yeah, Les Miles, who had just got to Kansas, was really stumping for them to get, uh, you know, this kind of, hey, give it a two year window for us to get back to the numbers because, Remember when David Beatty took over after Charlie Weiss, Charlie Weiss went, went heavy on um, junior college players and they were really in a deep hole and Beatty got, you know, bailed a little water, but really was never able to recover. And I feel like that program, you know, has been reeling from it ever since. Well, it shows you how quickly the, the climate has changed. Cause you're right. Jeff Long was the AD at the time and he was pushing a proposal that would basically say you can, you can only sign 50 over a two year period, but you can, it's up to you how many to spend in the first year or the second year. And the big, that became a big 12 proposal and didn't pass. Uh, it wasn't, it was rejected. And now it's only a few years later. And we're talking about forget limiting it to 50 over two years. There's no limits. Sign as many people as you want. Um, as long as you keep it to 85. So we know where this is headed. What Lincoln Riley did um, that was a little bit hush-hush, uh, what other first-year coaches have done in, in trying to purge the roster is now going to be, I, you know, I think you're going to see that become standard. Uh, I don't exactly know that it'll necessarily always be that right when they first get there, but if you're in a situation where you take over a team and the roster stinks – you now are, are incentivized to basically lop off the bottom, whatever percentage, because uh, now you don't have to worry about the only, the only thing that would have kept you from doing that in the past is you wouldn't have enough bodies because you could only sign 25. Now, you know, Hey, I could sign, I could sign 40 kids this year if I want uh, between this, high school and, and transfers. So let's spin this forward for a second because this came up um, the other day. I was talking to somebody about Georgia tech as a football coach. And the point was, you know, Jeff Collins took over at a time, basically a couple of years were, you know, have basically been in the COVID, you know, era, and that is hard to get traction. And this person made the point, well, your best player by far leaves to go to Alabama, Jamar Gibbs. And how are you able to get any momentum in the portal era. And it's kind of flipped to how I would normally think it is saying, well, 
you have more leeway and more opportunity to overhaul your roster quicker, much quicker than ever before. Um, I would think, and boosters can, and money people can interpret it however they want, but I think I'll interpret it this way is you have more opportunity to get better faster. Uh, so you better get better faster, or we're going to have less patience because the rules have changed. But the, the flip side, I think is also true where it, it's, it can be harder to build something because if you have good players on a not so good team, like a Jamar Gibbs, they're more likely to leave now. And I think that will make it harder for the mid-level mediocre programs, as opposed to the places that may have some, some splash and, you know, maybe you have a window, but that window is much smaller now. Um, I could see. So, well, I have no idea how this will play out. Just like I had no idea how NIL would play out. We just have to see. Um, I'm wondering though, if one scenario, you know, we've, we've heard in the transfer portal era, that it's affecting, it's having a ripple effect where less high school players are, are able to sign. Uh, there's just fewer spots available for high school players because coaches are deciding to use, in some cases, like look at Ole Miss. Well, look using, at Texas State. They signed like pretty much nobody a year ago. Yep. Yeah, you're seeing schools go from signing, let's say, 22 high school players and three JUCOs to, you know, 14, 13 high school players and 14 transfers. So, this is one way to get them back in the system. Uh, you could sign, go back to signing 25 high school kids plus however many transfers you want, but then there's going to be a weeding out process. And it's, it's, you know, people have brought this up, but it's kind of like remind, it's kind of like, um, you know, the old bear Bryant era, right. Where they would just, they would just sign kids just to keep them off their, uh, the, the teams they play roster. Uh, now the difference is those guys didn't have the 85 scholarship limit. So they could keep them as long as they wanted, you know, to get to 85 each year, you're probably going to have to say, okay, we bring in 25 high school players. And, and at the end of the first year, we'll say, okay, these, these uh, 15 or so, we, we can see you have a path here. Um, the other 10, um, you guys go, go, go somewhere else. Um it's going to be fascinating to see how it all works. I think it's another example of, I think there's a lot of right now, there's a lot of rush to, there's so much chaos and there's so much, um, uh, so many coaches struggling to, they, I mean, what this comes down to is this is, this is a measure to get some control back in the hands of coaches. They, they feel like they've lost control of their ability to manage their own roster because of the portal and, and specifically the immediate eligibility waiver. Now, they, this is one way to give them some modicum of control back. It's only a matter of time, though, before people are going to be. Um, it, there's going to be we're going to go. It's going to go full circle again. We're going to go back to the 2010, 2011 debate. Hey, is this ethical that they're bringing in all you know so many kids and then weeding them out immediately? Um, what if the kid wants to stay there, et cetera? You're also going to have, I would think, coach there. Not every coach is comfortable with running kids off. Uh, some coaches don't want to do that, but they're going to feel pressure to because, you know, other coaches are using that to upgrade their roster. And if you don't do that, you're not going to upgrade your roster as fast. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And without further ado, pleased to be with my old friend who has just, as we're taping this, it is Wednesday, Myron Roll, former Florida State star, former five-star recruit, uh, Road Scholar. I don't think you're ever a former Road Scholar, are you, Myron? You're always a Road Scholar, right? Always a Road Scholar, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, has his first book out, The 2% Way. It has football fingerprints all over it, dating back to his mentor, Mickey Andrews. Florida State fans and college football fans will remember that name. Uh, we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about a lot of things with Myron. Myron, thanks for joining us on The Audible today. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Appreciate it. All right. So uh, we have known each other for a long time, pre-Florida State, back when I'd spent a bunch of time with you and your family for the life of a recruit story we did at ESPN Magazine back in lovely uh, the Hun School in Galloway, New Jersey, right, or Princeton. Uh, And a lot has happened since then. But the obvious question is, you're not that old, but you've accomplished a ton of stuff. People see you on TV all the time. Um, what made you want to write a book now? Yeah, so, well, first, I have to say shout out to you uh, for being such a you know good friend to me and my family and uh, to writing that, that great piece of ESPN Magazine. That was really cool. That was, like, literally my first feature uh, that got me onto the radar screen of a lot of people around the country for uh, my football, but you really talked about uh, my academic success going to that prestigious prep school in Princeton that I'm school, you know, it's a little bit different than you know from public school, so that was really cool, so thanks, but, um, you know, I uh, I was walking home from work at Mass General Hospital as a resident, at this point I was a junior resident, and um, it was a 24-hour shift. I was very tired, and I typically talk to my wife, Latoya, uh, when I'm leaving the hospital. And, uh, you know, she was like, you know, Myron, I think you should write a book. And I'm like, no, <laughs> nobody wants to hear from me. In the doldrums of residency, it's cold, it's Boston. I don't know if I want to write a book now. But she was like, look, I believe in you. Every time we go out to eat or go somewhere or people write us messages, they're always saying how your story has inspired them. And I remember you saying how 
reading Ben Carson's story when you were younger inspire you to want to go into neurosurgery. So her sort of push and her belief in me was what I needed to um, start to activate this process. And uh, and then nine months later, you know, I have a manuscript and have a publisher and have a literary agent. And it's just it's a blessing that I'm able to put my life on paper, but then have a message um, be you know, streamlined within the the story arc of the 2% way, this mindset that I've used at each station, each season of my life to help me have success. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that, you know, because obviously Bobby Bowden was your head coach, Mickey Andrews was your defensive coordinator and obviously hands-on with secondary guys. Um, when you've been exposed to a lot of deep, deep thinkers, brilliant on the academic side, I, I mean, I, just some of the ones I know off the top of my head are leaders in all sorts of fields. This philosophy, um, this kind of mindset that has been instilled in you as a very accomplished person um, didn't come from the pure academic side. It came from basically the guy who helped you as a DB, Mickey Andrews. So how did you take what he was teaching football players and how did it maybe either re, you know, retrain your brain or give you a different kind of way of looking and absorbing and achieving? That's a great point. You know, there definitely have been a lot of people who I've encountered in, in life that, uh, you know, are incredible thinkers and, um, you know, leaders in uh, a lot of different industries. But Coach Andrews' mindset, this 2% way that he got from Paul Bear Bryant when he was a, a player at University of Alabama, it just made so much sense to me and it had so much versatility in all aspects of my person. Well, if you go out every day and practice uh, and try to get a little bit better, small, tangible goals of improvement in your stamina and your ability to coming in and out of breaks and your ability to high point the football and your ability to disguise bliss packages when you're showing a cover two show and you get down uh, to the A gap by the time, you know, the ball snapped. These things were, it just made sense to me. And I extrapolated this thought, this mindset, this ideology into anything that I did in life. I wanted to grab 2% from it and then stack it on top of each other to have these consistent wins, small steps every day. So then a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, I can see the improvement and the growth I've made. And so I, I, I loved that philosophy. I thought it was simple. I thought it, it blocked out the background noise. I thought it made sense to me. And I, I love to apply it uh, to all aspects of what I did, whether it be in, in my professional walk, trying to be a neurosurgeon, now here at Harvard doing that, uh, my philanthropic life as a chairman of a foundation, my spiritual life, my familial life with my, my wife and my kids, uh, whatever it is, you know, apply that 2% process. It's helped me tremendously, and that's why I hope that this book can resonate with individuals as well because it has so much versatility, it has so much utility, and it makes a lot of sense, and it, it is a way to, again, silence everything outside of your focus, your small steps uh, towards winning each day and, uh, and getting better and, and seeing you know, where you move from there. So what I really I liked about the book was there's a lot of stuff in here that either I had forgotten or maybe I didn't know the depths. But one of the first things that jumped out at me was in the recruiting process, it, you, you had some boomer sooner in you because I remembered you loved Bob Stoops, loved him, maybe didn't love the head coach at Michigan, but you loved Michigan the school. 
right? And so having worked with Bob Stoops the past year, I'm like, all right, I can see why. Everybody loves Bob who's around Bob, you know? And it was interesting because I completely forgot about that because everything I've known in the last couple of years of being around him, especially last year, was everybody in football loves Bob Stoops. He just treats people really well. Now, maybe if you were the media, you kind of saw a little bit, you know, you know, maybe um, a little bit of contrarian Bob, you know, at times. Um, whereas, you know, what I saw the last year, I'm like, everybody loves Bob. And you did, I remember how you felt about him coming out of, I think, your first offer maybe, right, when you went to camp there. Um, I'm curious how much, because you became a road, you, you pursued the road Scholarship because there was another elite high academic athlete at Florida State. But it's a kind of interesting path that has led you here, right? Because you could have gone anywhere out of high school. But the connection to go to Florida State, obviously as a New Jersey guy, with Penn State connections, right? Your brothers went to Penn State, maybe your sister-in-law did too. Um, beyond Mickey Andrews, what are some of the other things that maybe have been very serendipitous about your path and because it went through Tallahassee? Yeah, so you're right about Coach Dukes, man. I, I really do love that guy. I have and I still do. We still communicate to this day. Uh, he is amazing. Um, you know, I, as you remember, I went to uh, that camp in Norman uh, just to see if I could compete against talent that was outside of the city of New Jersey. And they were looking at this guy from uh, Bishop Gorman, Ryan Reynolds, and they were looking at the guy from Edmond, Oklahoma, Reggie Smith. And, you know, they had a lot of people on their, their minds and not me <laughs> at all. But when I finished that camp, I ended up with an offer. I ended up trying on Coach Stoops' rings that he had won at time in Florida and other rings he had from Iowa and all these different places. And it was just amazing. And offered me and said I was one of the youngest people was ever offered like Rod Woodson was another one that he offered at a young age so bringing my name into categories with someone like the Hall of Famer Rod Woodson was was huge and even after I committed to Florida State I stayed in touch with Coach Stoops and I think he might have even remarked to the media one time that Myron Roll is I think the only recruit that continues to call me even after he committed somewhere else because that's how much much I really enjoyed him but uh, Florida State was was the right spot it felt like the right spot to me going down there for my uh, my recruiting visit being around Coach Bowden who just had this grandfather-like figure to him. He was a Christian. My parents felt safe around him. They knew he wasn't going to bolt to go to the NFL. He was cemented in FSU for sure. Mickey Andrews the same way. He wasn't going anywhere. Put so many players into the National Football League. Samari, you know, my cousin was, was at FSU and really spoke highly of his time with Coach Andrews. Uh, you know, Garrett Johnson, that Rose Cal you're speaking about, he was heavy in my, you know, in my path as well. So I saw what I can be um, by seeing someone like Garrett there and then Jeb Bush wrote a text to our then president uh, TK Weatherall that you know Florida State is a great place and Myron you should think about coming so I just had everybody just showing a lot of love and I felt like going there would mobilize the resources around me to eventually put myself in a position to be a Rhodes Scholar at a school that I think at the time needed an academic sort of juggernaut, an academic hero, somebody, a student athlete that would really put us on the next level and get us away from, you know, some of the uh, reputation that we might have had. Uh, so it, they needed me. I needed them. It worked out incredibly well. I love FSU. I went there for medical school as well, got trained there to become, you know, a neurosurgeon now uh, here at Harvard. So it's it's been it's been a fantastic ride, and, and I appreciated my time on the football field and off the football field at Florida State. I enjoyed 
both parts of my college tenure uh, equally the same. How much does it feel like you've been pretty prominent as a football player, but as really the scholar athlete? And you get into some of it in the book where you're talking to some of your teammates and, you, you know, maybe how you were viewed. Um, I know there's, there's obviously big responsibility with it. There's obviously big opportunity comes with it. At some point, did it ever feel like also a little bit of a burden where it would wear heavy on you to, to, to kind of be that guy for a lot of people? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, it did at first, but eventually it became so routine. And it's like, this is not going anywhere, Myron. If you want to continue to uh, achieve success in the classroom, if you want to be a road scholar or a neurosurgeon, uh, you're going to have to continue to optimize all your academic opportunities. And so it wasn't it wasn't going to get any better. So I realized that I had to embrace it. And I realized I had to figure out ways uh, to help me through any stress that could come from it. And a part of that was uh, enlisting the help of my teammates to, to really, you know, help guide me through it. Even though you all thought I was a smart boy or president role or doctor role or whatever, whatever it was, you you all, I, I need you to support me. I need you to protect me from, you know, the distractions that could lead us astray. I need you to um, pray for me if, you know, I'm going for the Rhodes Scholarship. You know, I'm sitting in the middle of the huddle and, Prior to going to Birmingham, Alabama, my teammates put their hands on my shoulder and just said a big prayer in front of the whole team. It just, it was, it was that, it was that sort of support that was necessary uh, for me to, you know, continue to have success and wear that that mantle of, or, or sorry, wear that that title of being um, a, a student athlete. Because when I succeeded, they felt like they succeeded as well. And I had to be vocal and be forthright that this was the plan that I wanted to have, and I can't do it alone. I can't operate in a silo. I can't be out here, you know, just trying to, you know, set the world on fire alone. I, I, I really do need you all. And um, and that's that's been, I think, one of the secret keys to uh, the success I've been able to gain, along with the 2% way. You know, you just, you move slowly and you move forward, but you do it with other people in mind to help you, to help support your journey, to help buttress you forward. Uh, it's been it's been a great ride for sure. So we have something in common. We both have twins, boy-girl twins. Mine are a little older than yours. Not that much, but a little older. But then in very Myron Roll fashion, you did everything in a very, uh, very profound way. And you decided, hey, I just not one set of twins. Let's tee it up again 18 months later and have another set of boy-girl twins. And now you have four under two years old. Yeah. How exhausting is it to be a first-time parent with four children, um, be a neurosurgeon, and try to balance everything you guys are juggling at once it's uh it's exhausting uh and it is uh difficult at times but i will say this bruce you know i do i think i told you off air that i i, I follow your wife online and i see how she's you know putting up pictures of your son and your daughter and you know playing basketball football and and uh you know going to camps and then you know your daughter you know uh winning different awards and doing amazing things so i'm okay this is what i have to look forward to it's going to be good it's going to get out of the phase of crying every two hours and needing milk every two hours but um, but we have a lot of support, Bruce. I mean, we have my mother-in-law lives with us. I just bought a new house down in Orlando. My mother-in-law lives with me and my wife. My wife's a pediatric dentist, Latoya. Uh, so mother-in-law lives with us. 
mommy and daddy, my parents live 30 minutes away. We have a day nurse uh, that comes. We have a night nurse that comes as well. Uh, my father-in-law is not very far either. So we essentially, to use a football phrase, we stack the box and we make sure that we have everything we need um you know to try to support us um but it's it's great you know i i i know this is a uh we didn't expect to have this many this early but it's here god's been a blessing all of our kids are healthy they're developing well uh they sing and they dance and we have them listening to gospel music at times and they have their hands in the air and like praising the lord it's just it's it cracks you up our daughter smiles our oldest daughter zora she's her smile lights up her room it's it's just you know any fatigue and, and and lack of sleep that i get uh it just sort of goes away when you see like her smile and, and him dance and and the youngest ones you know look up at you with these eyes of wonder it's really really cool so it all works out <laughs> yeah it's just one thing i was it dawned on me a while back when we were talking was Back when my, I was in my ESPN days, I did a Q&A with you. I think you were at towards the end of your, you might have already graduated, but we talked about would you pay, like about paying athletes, college athletes at the time. And I remember specifically asking this question, um, would you, like, how would it work? Like, would you pay the track athletes if there? And I remember you said, of course, because, you know, Florida State at the time, I think maybe they just won a national championship. And it's like, how do you not pay them? And my feeling was always like, I don't know how this, you know, honestly, I don't know how this works. I'm not against it. I just think logistically it's a really, it's a real big challenge. Now that we've had NIL almost a year, like what has been your observations as somebody who probably could have, you know, made a lot of money um, capitalizing on your profile um, to see what it is, where it's going, you know, you're still connected to to uh, college athletes as somebody who's spoken on committees. I mean, how do you think it's going? Yeah, you know, I, I think the kid from Ponte Vedra would have probably had more NIL than me, but I think I would have, I think I would have done okay. Uh, mm-hmm. probably, probably would have followed him up, uh, Nice High School, Tim Tebow, but... Um, but yeah, you know, I I think that they have the right idea in the sense of allowing some compensation to these athletes for uh, their their work. I mean, I think I might have told you this story too, Bruce. That you know, my older brother McKinley, you're very close to him too. He went to St. John's in Queens, New York, and we were in Manhattan one time, and. The St. John's had this really good basketball player who I loved, one of my favorite college basketball players of all time, named Marcus Hatton. And we were walking in Times Square and there's this huge, huge billboard. And oh, by the way, Marcus Hatton, his number, jersey number was number one. So you walk into Times Square and then you see this huge billboard that says there's only one Manhattan and his number is one and then it's man and then a dash and hat like he spelled his last name and I'm, I'm thinking to myself man number one this is tight this is really really cool I, I like the way this looks I would love for me to be on a billboard one day but the second thought that came immediately after that was I wonder if he's getting paid for that like I wonder if Marcus Hatton is eating at McDonald's right now because he can't afford anything else because you know but his name is shining on lights in Times Square so at that point I realized it was important to compensate these athletes. I think there's a mechanism, maybe a better mechanism that they're doing right now, at least some structure. You don't want it to get out of hand where, you know, 
track athletes or the phenomenal soccer athlete as a woman or this phenomenal field hockey player um, feels left out or um, maybe not as um, celebrated or doesn't have the same level of opportunity or access to the kind of monies that um, the football male uh, basketball players may, may get. So I think there's going to be some tweaks and maybe a little bit more structure that, that could go into it. I, I would hate to see, again, those female athletes that work so hard and that grind so much and win all the time but aren't celebrated on TV as much as football and basketball, uh, them not um, you know have a shot at what you know a, a player from Western Kentucky can, you know, a football player from Western Kentucky can get. So I like the whole idea, the concept, but I think there got to be some guardrails in here somewhere placed. I don't know where, but they got to be. Yeah. Um, well, tell people where they can get the 2% way. I imagine it's pretty much everywhere at this point now that it released on Tuesday. Yes, absolutely. So release uh, on Tuesday and you can get it anywhere that you get books online, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, wherever. And it's available uh, in all formats. So audio and hardback, softback, whatever you need. Uh, we're excited about it. Um, on my website, uh, www. 2%way.com TWO%way.com You can get it there uh, You can go to my social media I have a link there as well So we try to make it not hard to find We hope that uh, it reaches a lot of people You know, this story And talking about this process Of overcoming challenges Making something that seems overwhelming And daunting Breaking it down into smaller pieces uh, So that you can have those small victories Every single day It's definitely useful for anyone Parent, coach, teacher, whatever And you'll see some of the issues That I went through The self-doubt, the uncertainty, the prejudice The racism um, Maybe feeling like I'm socially awkward And don't belong in certain settings um, Doubting myself and thinking that I'm maybe not enough uh, or not good enough surgeon to handle certain surgeries or even workplace challenges or even, you know, dealing with my wife and, and being distanced from her and trying to manage those challenges of raising a family and being together and being on the same page, even though we're separate and apart. So a lot of human experiences are in this book and I think it can hit home to a lot of people. So we're very excited about it. Yeah. And I think it does just from having read the first half and I think it does a very good job of connecting, giving a window into you fitting in New Jersey kid from who went to a prep school going to Tallahassee at a time where, you know, I think, like you said, you could help them image-wise as much as they could help you. And I thought it was interesting, your acclimation process and how, how you connected with people there and how they connected with you, I thought was was very cool to read. Um, so, uh, all right. So, for people who want to follow you online, it's still just at Myron Roll. And um, are you still doing some... Uh, you still going and doing a lot of speaking aside from the book promotion? Yeah, I am. Yeah, we have a couple, you know, book signing events that we're doing. Uh, Tallahassee and Jacksonville, uh, coordinating some in Nassau, Bahamas, back in the crib. Uh, you know, going to be a couple up here in Boston as well. So, uh, yeah, a lot. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just, you know, doing the best we can to... Um, you know, uh, allow this book to get into the airspace of as many people as possible. And then just my story uh, to do the same. Uh, I, I I connected with someone like Ben Carson when I was younger, and I know how it really, really changed my life. And maybe that can I, that can be the case for someone who uh, comes across uh, my story. So that'd be outstanding. 
Awesome. Myron, it's great connecting with you again. Best of luck on the book. I'm sure it'll do great. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to join us on the Audible today. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate you having me. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. What do you say we get to the mailbag? As always, send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Stu, what, what's first on your list? All right. At first, I just wanted to give out a disclaimer. Almost every single question we got this week was about NIL. Bruce, you know, I get it. It's the topic of the moment. But I feel like Bruce and I kind of feel like we've run out of things to say on it. So we've limited it to one NIL question. And we would encourage you guys to ask about other things football related. Um, Blaine from Virginia. Okay, Bruce, I got to admit, I have not watched yet USFL for one minute. So I can't answer this, but you can. I know the archaic and slow chain gang drives Stu nuts. That is true. Since the USFL is a Fox partner, how have the electronic change how have the electronic chains worked out, Bruce? Do you think it'll be brought over to college and the NFL? This is something I've been saying for probably a decade. Why are we still using 1940s technology to determine the spot of the ball? Can't we use GPS trackers? Apparently, the USFL has tried that with what kind of results? Yeah, so it's it's a little tricky um, because early on, I, I thought it was just kickers, but it's actually, I guess, quarterbacks too had some frustration. So the the chip inside the ball or that technology adds, you know, four or five ounces to the ball and how it's distributed within the ball, I guess, is not evenly. So it's caused some frustration. I think that they have ad- tried to address that in certain situations, which ball they're going to use as opposed to that technology. Um, one of the things that had come up, I thought was, if especially you know, when you think of kickers, you're thinking of kickers and punters, but I think it's more the kickers because of the spin of the ball and the rotation of the ball with it inside. But also when you're thinking about it, it's not like you're going to throw a pass end over end. And I guess there was a little bit of frustration on that part. So I don't know, like I'm a huge football fan. So I've watched a, a decent amount of it and just, you know, having friends who are working on the broadcasts, it's also kind of got me to, to keep an eye on it. Um, you know, it's been kind of a mixed bag. There's not a lot of, you know, even for diehard college football fans, there's not a lot of wrecking. There's way less recognizable names than I think most people would think. I mean, you're sitting there watching games and Jonathan Adams, who you know, remember in the COVID year at Arkansas State just, you know, broke out and was a big time guy. And you're like, man, I'm surprised that guy's not in the NFL. Um, but getting back to the technology piece, there's there's a bunch of interesting innovations that are going on. I think some may stick or may get refined and other ones are like, you know, probably going to get thrown onto the scrap heap that are coming out of this. And I'm sure the XFL next year 
well, you know, the, that's the one that The Rock is involved with. We'll probably try to have some of their own initiatives as well. I hope they can make that GPS thing work because it's when you really think about it, this is a sport. There's so much at stake in this sport. People's livelihoods, millions, if not billions of dollars. And oftentimes the game comes down to a spot, right? <laughs> I mean, think of the JT Barrett, Ohio State, Michigan game. It is so unscientific. Um, or, or, you know, you, you'll be on the sideline. You, you've obviously been on the sidelines a lot. And you look over at the guys who are holding the change. These guys are volunteers. Like these guys are librarians or whatever during the week. And on Saturdays, they get to come hold the chains. It seems <laughs> it just doesn't fit with the overall um, professionalization of the sport. Um all right, here's a good football one from Dave and Charlotte. Which new coordinators will have the biggest impact on their new school? And I'm going to take an, one offensive guy and one defensive guy. My offensive guy is going to be a name that probably not a lot of people will be familiar with unless you're watched, looked at a lot of group of five or live in Lubbock. And that's Zach Kitley. Uh, former, you know, he's a protege of Cliff Kingsbury. And the way I would describe it from talking to coaches on that staff now in Lubbock is this is not your father's air raid offense. There's a big portion of that, but then there's some definite wrinkles that are different. He was at Houston Baptist. They average almost 50 points a game. Um, I think their second year. And then he brought he, he went to Western Kentucky, brought uh, Bailey Zappi, and they broke all sorts of records there. And like, I think, you know, look to me, Texas tech, and I'm not saying they're going to go back to where Leach was and they're going to be dangerous and nationally relevant. That may happen. That may not. Um, But I think the big 12 sooner than, you know, later is kind of going to go up for grabs again. Right. We'll see. I think Oklahoma is not going to drop off much this year um, under the coaching change, but I feel like, you know, it's, it's, you just have a lot of new blood there, right? New coach at TCU, new coach at OU. You, you know, you got to, you know, Baylor had a really good year. So I was like, I'm not saying Texas Tech is going to come in and win the conference, but I think they're going to go back to putting up a lot of big numbers. On the defensive side, I'm going to take a former Big 12 guy, and that's Jim Knowles. And I think Oklahoma, you know, Oklahoma State, he made them very good on defense. You know, they were a problem because of how he managed things and they gave people headaches. Now he's going to go to a place where he's going to have a lot more talent up front. And Ohio state has had a lot of issues though on the back end. And I feel like, you know, last year there's for a team that has had so many high, high draft picks you know, in the last few years, it's and they've had still a bunch of four and five star guys back there. It's been pretty well underwhelming on defense. At times, they've been lost. They were good when Jeff Halfley was there, and then after that, it's been it's been a very mixed bag. And I think Jim Knowles was a really good hire, and I think he has a chance to fix a lot of that. You, yeah, Jim Knowles is the obvious answer for this question, just because he he did such a tremendous job. Uh, at Oklahoma state. And like you said, I mean, he's walking into what should be one of the more talented, you know, if you're, if you oftentimes you're a defensive coordinator taking over a program where the talent level has really dipped that maybe it's a little bit down at Ohio state, but we know it's still um, for the most part uh, 
bunch of guys who with NFL potential. So, I mean, you uh, go back to that game, the the Oregon game, and you're just watching them get like exposed. You know, like the linebackers struggle. The people on the back end looked lost. They didn't get the pressure they used to get. Obviously, you know, they had Chase Young before, and they had you know generational talent guys up front, not just five star guys. They had you know real different players. Um, I'm interested to see how it'll go there. I mean, I think Ryan Day, and as we tape this podcast, you know, they're just, you know, announced that he's got a contract extension for a couple more years and a couple more million dollars. I like the hires he made, the additions he made, both Justin Fry on the O-line where they had been shaky last year and certainly Knowles. I think those are two really good additions for the Buckeyes. Now, sometimes it's hard to separate when there's a head coaching change, you know, head coaches coordinator impact, but one I'll point out is Oregon and Kenny Dillingham coming in as the offensive coordinator. Um, It's seen. So look, he's replacing a very accomplished offense coordinator, Joe Moorhead, but Oregon's offense stunk last year. (laughs) There's no way around it. They couldn't, they never could figure out what exactly they were doing. Um, And people got frustrated because it seemed like they weren't, especially when it's Oregon and you're used to these, um, you know, going back to Chip Kelly, these really explosive offenses, that was, you know, a very not explosive offense. Well, so, so Dan Lanning brings in Kenny Dillingham and in the spring game, Oregon looks like a completely different offense. They've got Bo Nix now there at quarterback. He's throwing the ball around the yard, just a much more wide open, aggressive approach than what they were doing the last couple of years of Mario Cristobal's tenure. Now I'm not saying that Kenny Dillingham doesn't necessarily have a track record as a highly accomplished OC. So I'm not necessarily coming out here and predicting that they'll, and he's never been a play caller before. So, well, <laughs> we'll find out. I also, I mean, I think I know what's going to happen because I've seen three years of Bo Nix. I think he's going to make a lot of exciting plays and he's going to have games where he throws three or four interceptions. But, but if nothing else, there'll be, um, it'll be an impact. Uh, let's put it that way. Um, and then there's just ones where like the team is already pretty good. So I don't know that, you're necessarily going to see a huge improvement, but I'm interested to see the transition from Mike Elko, who was so had so many great defenses at Texas A&M, to DJ Durkin, who's coming off uh, a pretty um, remarkable improvement uh, at at Ole Miss, but not they weren't at, obviously at the level that that A&M was last season. Um, you know, there's a there's a few of those like that. You know, will Derek Mason be able to sustain what uh, Jim Knowles was doing at Oklahoma State, ones like that. Yeah, the, I, I'm curious to see how it goes at Oregon with Dillingham and Dan Lanning. Keep in mind, Dan Lanning, obviously, defensive coordinator by trade, comes from the SEC, learned under Nick Saban, but also learned, learned under Kirby Smart. Um, will he want to be wide open? I mean, I think the thing that sometimes people forget is – when you're a head coach, they they're mindful at times of playing what's called complementary football. And if you're throwing it all over the yard, as you were talking about in a spring game, that may not be what you see. So we'll see if if it looks like a Big Twelve kind of style offense going after Georgia in Week One with the Ducks or not. 
By the way, another under the radar one. I mean, almost you forget this happened, but Manny Diaz is the defensive coordinator at Penn State now. Yeah, and a part of the reason why James Franklin wanted Manny Diaz, who, look, he had success as a coordinator, but was there? he felt like there was a lot of similarities in terms of scheme and what he's done compared to Brent Pry. And so, um, and there's some good talent there to work with. So you're right. I think that will be an interesting one to keep an eye on there um, in the Big Ten. All right, the NIL question I chose was this one because I've heard it a lot. Matthew Akers asks us, dear uh, Stu and Bruce, do you think that the college football facilities arms race will slow down as a result of boosters putting more financial resources into NIL collectives? I would imagine that boosters will still contribute money towards facility improvements, but not at the same pace as before the NIL era. Obviously, TBD. Uh, too early to say how that's going to play out, though I will say that Andy Staples Went to Texas A&M recently, did an interesting story there. And the answer, if you're just going off that one small sample size of that one school, the answer is no, it hasn't affected it at all. They just announced a huge capital campaign to, uh, I believe, build a new football facility, which is crazy because I've been to their football facility and it's perfectly nice the way it is. Um, so we know they're doing very well with their NIL collective and they're you know, launching this campaign. I think people underestimate... If you're filthy rich enough to be throwing millions of dollars at high school players, you've got a lot of money to, to, to burn. And I don't necessarily know that it's one or the other. Also, in our story that I did with Manny Navarro that went up today on our site, it's also talked about, you know, Miami's ready to put, you know, a shovel in the ground and they're going to work on a new football facility, you know, and you know, hope to be able to have it in for the 2023 class. I mean, so they're moving fast on it. And obviously, as you said, they're, they're aggressive in all their resources now. One thing that would not shock me, you know, like we're obviously on the infancy stage, it's not even a year into NIL, is I think there is going to be some course correction of how some of the money gets thrown around. I think the idea of, hey, the collectives or, you know, agents and are scrambling and it's all of a sudden going to be uh, throwing seven figures at, at players who haven't done anything when you may have players who are proven on your roster who are not getting as much. I think there's going to be some, I think there's going to be some uh, belt tightening on that because how many of, you know, how many of these players who are going to be getting contracts now they may not be get, end up getting this, you know, seven figures ultimately, but are, are going to be lining up for those deals and are being, you know, shopped around by agents. I don't know, you know, how that business model is going to work out when a bunch of, when a bunch of these players end up turning out to not be able to produce at that level. You know, I think that's the part where, you know, for some of this money, you're going to have to expect Cam Newton type impacts and programs. And we just know that's not going to work out that way. There may be one in 10 that do that. There may be one in 10 that, you know, and I'm not even talking to be, to, obviously Cam Newton was a generational talent, but, you know, think about some of the five-star players who've come out. Like that's the, right now, there's a lot of money being thrown that, you know, realistically, do you think a third of those kids are going to live up to it? No, but I can see both sides of this. So that's that's one theory that after a year or two of people seeing these these recruits they threw all this money at not panning out, that they will pull back on spending that kind of money. 
the flip side of that would be why would this be any different than the coaching cycles where how many times do, do, do we see a coach get bought out for 15 20 million dollars i think the difference on that is coaches do have a track record before they get the money not necessarily no, I mean, you can't tell me that there's a coach who didn't have some kind of track record that they, they're not awarding it almost like lottery winners. You know, to me, that's the different part of this where I could definitely see if there's another version of Jordan Addison that comes out or some, you know, not even a pit, but some group of five player who lights it up and people realize, oh, he should have been, you know, a four star rated player or a five star rated player then the bidding war goes in. And I'm not saying that like no one's going to ever pay for a high school player again, because I, I know that they will. I'm just saying the talk of the agent feeding frenzy, I think that is going to get more pushback now, just because I think you're going to see schools go, hey, you know, we're not paying $2 million a year for this quarterback because... He hasn't done anything and we got a better player in our program who actually has, you know, it's just, I think that's the stuff where it's, it's going to create a lot more problems. You're talking about coaches, but coaches aren't, you know, whoever the coach is, they weren't just hired off the street. You know, what I'm saying is you hire, you, you know, let's say you're Florida state, you hire Willie Taggart. He turns out to be a disaster. You got to pay $20 million to buy him out. You would think, the next contract you give out to a coach wouldn't you wouldn't fall for that again but they do they always they always get J Jimmy Sexton whoever always convinces them to hand out another completely one-sided contract but Mike Norvell use the example of Florida State Mike Norvell had a really good four-year run or three-year run at Minnesota I mean at Memphis and it wasn't like it's much different to me than taking somebody who's never played college football at any level. You're basing it off in some cases, like some of these deals we're talking about now, they're based off like seven on seven leagues and camps. That's not college football. You know, it's just a different deal. Now, Dan Lanning, no doubt. I mean, if you're a first time head coach, it is a gamble. I don't think it is it is as wildly um you know, like to me, it's just a different dynamic, though, than you already have players on your roster who may be more proven. And now you're going to be putting way more of an investment in somebody who's not even going to be there for a year. That's my point. So, yeah, I could see, you know, what I could see is is a um, reallocation of that money. Uh, because, you know, to this point, the big, most splashy contracts we're hearing about are going to recruits, and in particular, kids who aren't even in their senior year of high school. I could see it reversing itself where that money starts going more toward transfer portal, like a Jordan Addison. If we're, if we're going to start to see more players of his caliber enter the portal, like that to me is a better use of your... Or, and Danny Staples has pointed this out, you know... Uh, if you've got a kid who could turn pro, right, and possibly be a, not a first-round pick, but mid-level pick, um, give him a, you give him a seven-figure NIL deal for his to come back for one more season. I'm going to read you a quote from a coach I talked to this week. This week. You see all these articles with all these guys hitting the transfer portal, and they say the number one issue is tampering. But that's not the case. It's the agents, man. 
These agents are out of control in football and what they're asking for. It's not schools like all those stories talking about. The schools are offering three hundred dollars or 400000 for me to leave. No, that's not the case. Your agent was calling around saying, hey, I got a guy who may, who may be interested in getting in the portal. What would you offer him? The agents have quietly gone under the radar and they're at the root of this whole money crisis. So those last two words are really, really telling, huh? Money crisis. Well, how is this a crisis that, that athletes are making a lot of money? I think it's a crisis, not that athletes are getting a lot of money. I think the issue comes back to you are spending, you know, these collectives are throwing a lot of money at players who are not yet in their program. And they're going to be, they're commanding and trying to get way more money than anybody else who's in the program. That's the issue I think that that I think is a challenge for coaches to sort out. I've said many times that this will eventually normalize itself, but by normalize, I don't mean the the value the, the number of dollar signs you're seeing are going to go back to shrinking. I mean, I, what we're this is a free market, and what we're learning is that if there had been a free market all this time, there would have been a lot of money uh, going toward the athletes and. Um, and there was a lot of money going towards some athletes. Towards some athletes, yeah, under the, under the table. But we're seeing it, you know, I think um, at, a, at a scale that I don't think was happening under the table. Um, so when I say normalize itself, I mean maybe some of the uh, outlandish figures you're seeing for high school recruits, maybe that turns out to be an outlier. But again, like that money will find its way to somebody. It'll, it'll, maybe it'll be a current player. Maybe it'll be a transfer portal kid. This is money that rabid college football fans have to burn, and they want to spend it on may helping their team win a championship. It's not a rational market, right? It's not a um, you know a Fortune 500 company where if if they spend a gazillion dollars developing a product and it doesn't work out, then they pull the plug because why would you keep doing something that's operating at a loss? I if anything, you could see okay, well, we spent all this money on the recruiting class and it didn't turn out. So maybe we need to spend more money. Maybe we just didn't spend enough. This is, we're not talking about rational actors here. We're talking about fans who want to win a championship or Phil Knight or somebody you know, who's got more money than he knows what to do with. And if it turns out that... More money than he knows what to do with and less probably time than he, you know, he knows his own, you know, biological clock is, is ticking. Yep, and he wants way. a national championship. So he better hope that Dan Lanning does turn out to be every bit um, that whatever they're paying him uh, worth it. Um, all right, send your questions to audiblepod at gmail.com. And again, like we love any number of topics you could ask us about, and they don't have to be NIL because that's not going away. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.